Well, it was February, the year was 1519, and Spanish explorer Hernan Cortes commanded his fleet of 11 ships, 508 soldiers, about 100 sailors, and 16 horses to the coast of Mexico. He had been commissioned by the Spanish government to go and conquer the Aztecs there and claim that land for Spain. After reaching the shores of Mexico, they were uh, met with an unpleasant surprise. The conditions were far more difficult than they had anticipated, and it was really rough going. And, And after a short amount of time, a lot of the men started talking and whispering to each other and secretly making plans to take the ships and go back home. And upon hearing this, Cortes took immediate action in an extraordinary act of courage and to the total amazement of his men, Cortes set fire to his ships and watched them all burn and sink beneath the water. And those columns of smoke that rose into the air stood for a brief moment as a memorial to a man who was more committed to the call than he was to the pull of the past. That's an extraordinary account of someone in history answering a call, being committed to that call, and being willing to sever his ties to the past regardless of the personal cost because there was a mission in mind that he wanted to accomplish. Today we're going to look at the call that came to another man and see what lessons we can learn from this and apply to our own lives. I want to set the scene for you of these events. Picture yourself living in a time where times were really, really bad. There was a king ruling the land who, we're told, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the kings who had come before him. Idol worship and paganism was rampant. The country had been ravaged by a three and a half year drought that had laid the land to waste. All of God's prophets were being rounded up and executed. It would be safe to say, I think, that not too many people were applying to become a prophet down at the unemployment office at that time. A lot of people were getting out of the prophet business. No one was getting in. And it's right in the midst of that bleak scene that God called a farmer named Elisha to become the next prophet. And the astonishing response we see from this man is something we can all learn a lot from and we can begin applying in our lives today. And I want to say this quickly, just because Elisha was called to become a prophet doesn't make it beyond our personal application for our own life experiences. I can't spend time on this, but I'll just say quickly, I think the church as a whole over the years has done a tremendous disservice in the area of elevating pastors and missionaries to some kind of more holy, higher, uh, more respectable status than everyone sitting in the pews, so to speak. And I think it's a terrible disservice, and I think it's brought tremendous stagnation to the spreading of the gospel. Because what people have been taught, and this goes all the way back to Constantine in the early 300s, by the way, when he started the Roman Catholic Church and forced people to come to church and put the, put the guy up front in a big hat and big scary robes and put him up way up high on a podium. What that put in people's minds was, 
oh, I, I come here to see that guy because he's the guy who's in touch with God. This whole Christian thing where I'm just going to sort of fumble my way through and there's not much God can do with me. It's, it's the pastors and the bishops and the missionaries. Those are the ones God uses. I'm telling you, that has, that has brought such devastation to the body of Christ and to the move of his kingdom. So I want to say to you, I, I think the church, I don't think they've meant harm, but I think the church has really done us a bad deal by, by sort of praising pastors and missionaries more than the faithful woman who comes every week and cleans the restrooms or sets the flowers out or whatever, or the one who prays for this church every week. And so we've got this in our mind, oh, so-and-so was called into the what? Ministry. We always say that. Oh, he was called into the ministry. Can I just tell you, if you're saved, you're called into the ministry. Every one of us. I just have a different role than you. My role is not higher than yours. It's not better. It's, it's not more holy. Ask my wife. <laughs> it's not. It's not more holy. And so I don't want you to, to look at this today and go, oh, well, Elisha, he was called to be the next prophet. I mean, how does that apply to me? Listen, God's calls can come to us in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places at a thousand different times. He could call you and prompt you to do something you think is so small and insignificant but in his kingdom, in his eternal view, that's going to spark a chain reaction after you're dead that is going to bring about a move that you could never imagine. So there's little calls when you're sitting in here and God prompts your heart for something. That's a call. So keep that in mind as we get into the text. Well, last week we were in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We saw how Elijah the prophet had had a tremendous victory on Mount Carmel, but then he, he just sort of sunk into a... Is it sunk or sank? He sank, never, I don't care what it is, I don't care. <laughs> English wasn't my strong point, nor was math or science or geography or history or any of that. We, we saw how Elijah fell into a very deep point of discouragement and depression to the point where, remember, he, he went out a day's journey into the wilderness to be by himself, sat under a tree and said, God, kill me. God, put me to death. I can't do this anymore. But we saw how God lovingly came and restored Elijah physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then we finished last week down towards the end of chapter 18 where uh, God sent Elijah on a brand new assignment. God wasn't done with him just because Elijah had hit bottom. That's something to keep in mind. And the specific part of that assignment that God sent Elijah on is what we're going to look at today. So look first at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. Now this is right in the middle of where God is giving instructions to Elijah to go on this new mission. It says this, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And here's what we're interested in. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Now those are words we can read and just move right on and not think much about. But anoint as a prophet in your place, in the place of Elijah? Those are very stout words. And what do we see Elijah do? Well, we see him do what we've seen him do since uh, we were introduced to him a few chapters ago. Verse 19, so he departed from there. He just got right on it. He departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was driving the 12th pair. 
Then Elijah passed by him or, or walked up to him and threw his mantle on him, his cloak. Verse 20, and he, that is Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please, let me kiss my, my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again. What have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, in other words, as the fire, and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. We're only going to cover those three verses today, but there's a lot here. Uh, I've boiled it down to five simple things that I want us to look at. I had 18. You can thank me later. Five things, and these are just very simple and very applicable. So here we go. Number one, these are some things we see in the, in the uh, response of Elisha. Number one, he was being faithful in his current circumstances. He was being faithful in his current circumstances. Verse 19a, so Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was driving the 12th pair. Now, just imagine for a moment how difficult it would be to try to raise crops after a three-and-a-half-year drought. We saw last week how people were out searching everywhere just to find a few little bits of grass to gather, to feed their, their horses and their mules so that they would not die. I mean, things were, things were extremely bad. The land had been completely destroyed by this drought, and yet... The first glimpse we get of Elisha, we find him out plowing his fields, doing his job despite the harsh conditions. He wasn't sitting around waiting for better days. He wasn't complaining and grumbling how the drought had destroyed his crops. He didn't say, you know, I've really started sensing this call of God on my life, so I'm not going to go work anymore. I'm just going to lay on the couch and eat Doritos until God comes and tells me what to do next. No, he was out doing what he could. He was being faithful right where he was, using what God had already given him. You ever been guilty of saying things like, boy, if I could sing like her, I bet God could really use me. <laughs> was that our worship leader? <laughs> That's scary. I know y'all, you've thought that about me many times in regards to singing. If I could sing like Phil, then, then we'd clear the crows out of here. Have you ever thought, you know, if I, could, if I could teach like that guy on the radio, wow, maybe God could do something with me. Or, or, you know, when my finances get better, then, then I'll, I'll serve the Lord. When the kids leave home, when I retire, when my circumstances improve, then I'll start doing what God wants me to do. Then I'll start listening for his calls. Can I just politely tell you, no, you won't. You won't. Because I'm here to tell you, there will never be a better time. Things will never get completely better in your life. Happy Sunday. They will never get better. If we're not serving God now, where we are with what we have, the chances are great that we will not serve him anywhere else with anything else. The parable of the talents that, that Jesus told teaches us to be faithful with what we've already been given, right? One was given five, one, one person was given five talents, money, another two, another one. It says each according to his ability. 
The one that had five worked hard while the master was away, and he gained more money for the master. The one with two did the same thing. The one with one talent, uh, he hid it away. He didn't want to take any risks with it. He hid it away, wasn't willing to work it, wasn't willing to try, and he was the only one who was chastised when the master returned. Why? Because he buried what God had given him to use. Maybe he said, oh, you know, interest rates are down, so I'm going to wait until a better time on the stock market. I'm going to wait until another time. But he missed his opportunity to use what God had given him. I've said this before, and it's true. I don't know who is um, responsible for this quote, but they said this. had to be somebody in the South. If you can't be faithful where you are, you won't be faithful where you ain't. And that's very true. So let me just ask you quickly, are you being faithful right now, right where God has put you, with exactly what God has given you? Here's another thing I should point out quickly before we get to the second point. The, uh, the earlier verses already said that Elisha was specifically being called as the next prophet. But when we meet Elisha, he's not in a classroom teaching theology. We don't see a religious book in his hand. We see a plow in his hand. A plow. I don't think this can be overstated, the importance of this. God wasn't calling a theologian to be the next prophet. He was calling a farmer. And folks, this should speak loudly to all of us. God doesn't need to call the powerful and the influential and the high and mighty and the brilliant and the rich to do his work. God didn't say, oh, Elisha, he's just a farmer. I can't use him. No, that's what people think. You ever been guilty of overlooking someone just because you summed them up? And in your own brilliance, you thought you had them pegged? You find out later, they're, they're holier than you've ever been in your life. They're serving God more than you've ever served him in your life. It's quite a humbling thing. Yeah. Listen, folks, God uses everyday, ordinary mess-ups like you and me. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh may glory in his presence. That describes every one of us. So I wonder what might happen in your life, in this church, in this community, in this nation, if every one of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, regardless of what we do with a li- uh, for, for a living, regardless of what we have or don't have, if every one of us said, Lord, use my little old life for your kingdom. I'm making myself available to you. I wonder what would happen. Secondly, he recognized the call when it came. He recognized the call. Verse 19b, then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Seems like a weird thing for us to to read. A mantle in those days was a very, very important piece of clothing. It served as protection from the rain and cold. It served as a blanket at night if you were sleeping outdoors. But it did something else. Mantles of a certain color, a certain design, a certain style would serve to identify the person wearing it as a king or a prophet or something. And so 
Even from a long way off, people could look and see if Elijah was walking into town, they could see from 50, 60 yards away, oh, there comes a prophet, just by the mantle that he wore. And it was also a picture for them of being covered in the word and the power of God. So Elijah walking out into this field, can you see him kind of stepping over the, the clumps of dirt in the rows and maybe slipping here and there? And he's walking over to Elisha, who's out there plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and all the servants, all the people, everybody around who saw this man walking through that field, they knew exactly who he was. He was a prophet of God. And when he took off his mantle and he threw it around Elisha, that was a symbolic gesture that Elisha had been chosen as the one to come under Elijah's authority. In the Bible, when, when reference is made, and it's numerous places uh, where it's made of someone spreading their garment or their cloak over a person, it's a beautiful picture of taking that person in under your wing sort of, sort of thing, taking them in and caring for them as your own. It was a picture also in the Bible used of marriage, where the husband spreads his cloak over his bride. I mean, after all, what is, what is a mantle? What is a cloak? It's a covering. It's a covering. And it's such a beautiful picture of bringing someone into the warmth and protection of that covering. So by Elijah putting his cloak, his mantle, onto Elisha, make no mistake, everybody watching in that day knew exactly what had just taken place. They didn't say, wow, Elisha must have been chilly. Thanks for taking care of that. It wasn't that at all. See, we mess things up today in 2021 because we try to understand the Bible through our lenses. But everybody who saw that knew immediately what had just taken place. And it meant that Elijah would take him under his care, that Elijah's prophetic authority was about to be transferred to Elisha, there was something else, I think, that took place in that moment. As always happens when God speaks to someone, it's obvious that Elisha felt a tug from God on his heart. You ever felt that? Been driving down the street and God just tugs on your heart for something? And you know it's him. That's why I always encourage people, move in the direction of what God is burdening your heart for. Don't worry about what God is burdening their heart for. For instance, we, you know, we have a friend who has spent years working in hospice. I couldn't do that if I tried. What a challenging, difficult task. I, I know a, another good friend, well, he's preached here once, who works with crack addicts and cocaine addicts. What a, what a heart-wrenching job that is. It's so painful. I couldn't do that. But see, that's not what God has burdened my heart for. I can drive down the street past 20 senior citizens' homes, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way at all, but, but I don't feel the urge to stop and pull in there and go and be with those people. But there are those who do. That's what God is pulling their heart for. So pay attention to those little tugs in your heart. What is God burdening your heart for? No matter how big or small it may seem, no matter how insignificant or unimportant it may seem, move in the direction of the burdens that God puts on your heart. You want to find God's will for your life? There's a great place to start. So Elijah clearly felt this tug on his heart by the way he responded. But that can't be so, right? Because he was just a farmer. So how could he feel the call of God if he's just a farmer, just an everyday guy? I mean, he knew all about plows and oxen and seed and different seasons and types of soil and sowing and harvesting. 
So how was it that this farmer was so quick to recognize and respond to the call of God when it came? Well, listen, no doubt Elisha had already been tuned into God long before Elijah came along. Don't miss what I just said. Elisha had already been dialed in, tuned in to God long before Elijah ever walked across that field. And so when the call of God did come, he was ready for it. Did you know that right now in this room, if you listen carefully, maybe you can hear there are dozens of different songs playing. There's someone reading the news, if you listen carefully. There are people commentating on different topics in sports. Right now, it's all around us. But we can't hear it because we don't have a radio. If we had a radio, we could turn the dial. This shows you how old I am. Still turn a dial. You could turn the dial and go through the static, and you'd pick up one thing after another. It's right here. It's all around us. But you've got to have the right equipment to be tuned in to hear it. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So let me ask you, are you staying tuned in to God every day so that you'll recognize his calls when they come? I got to move on, but I just, I have to tell you, you, you won't hear his calls if all you do is come here for an hour and a half every week, because I can't do that for you try my best. I try to give you everything I have every Sunday, but I can't bring you to that place. Your, your tuning into God has to happen during the week outside of here, and I don't care how you do it. I don't put rules on people. You have to do it between 6 and 7 a.m. and whatever. Who cares? Just do it. Just open the Bible and start somewhere. God will show you. <clears throat> Stay tuned in to him so that when he speaks, you'll recognize his voice. Quickly, number three, Elisha responded to the call. He responded. He didn't just recognize it. He responded. Verse 20a, and Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, this is amazing to me. Elisha was ready to obey God's call, even though he knew that becoming a prophet could and possibly would mean a death sentence. He could have said, hey, listen, uh, Elijah, pal, uh, I hear what you're saying. I'm all for it. I'm on board with this, but... Uh, you know, in case you haven't noticed, now isn't the best time to, to be in the profit business. So I tell you what, man, you go ahead, you do your thing, and when all this cools down, you swing back by, pick me up, and we'll, we'll head off. No, he, he didn't say that. Elisha responded to God's call in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the timing. Can I just drop a little nugget of truth here for you? God's calls seldom come at convenient times. Seldom. In fact, I'd have to think real, real hard to come up with an example of when I said, hey, Sandy, guess what? This is the perfect time for God to call us to do X. Isn't it the perfect time? Yes, it sure is, Phil. No, it just never works that way. God's call comes and you look at your life and go, that's impossible. I can't, I can't do this now. I can't give that now. I can't serve that way now. That's why it's absolutely vital that we do what this next verse says, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. If we're trying to follow the Lord based on what we can see and feel and, and sense with, with our physical senses, there will never be a good time to step out and serve him. It's only through the eyes of faith that we can see beyond the physical into the spiritual and then step out by faith. 
If we wait until everything is just right before we serve God, we will never serve God. So you've got to make up your mind now. If you've been waiting and putting it off, and yeah, one day, it's just not the right time, it's not going to happen, folks. So I ask you this question. Is there anything God has already asked you to do, prompted your heart for, that you still haven't responded to because you're waiting for a better time? And folks, I've been asking myself these questions for years. I'm not laying heavy stuff on you that I haven't worked through. I could tell you so many examples. I remember the time I, uh, years ago, I got a call out of the blue from an old missionary friend of ours when we were in South Africa. I didn't know where he was, but he told me he was in the Atlanta area. He said, could we meet halfway for lunch sometime, you and Sandy? So we did. Actually, it was dinner. And we sat down and started talking and just... He didn't beat around the bush. He said, the reason I wanted to see you is I want you and Sandy to sell your house and move to Atlanta and help us start a church. I was like, check, please. <laughs> and it got real quiet on my end of the table. And we did the, you know, did the goodbyes and got in the car, and Sandy and I probably drove for 15 minutes without saying a word. And then she said, well, what do you think? I said, I think it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. You can't do that. And I started making a list. I'm a to-do guy. Sandy, look at all this stuff we would have to do. Look at what we'd have to change. The kids are tiny. We can't uproot them. We can't. It's never a convenient time. But we did. And for two years, Sandy and I tried to sell our house. People would come in and go, this is exactly what we're looking for. How soon can you be out? And we're like, whenever. And then we'd never hear from them again. This happened for two years. And so every weekend, Sandy and I drove to Atlanta and back with two little kids to help start a church down there. What I didn't realize, and it was the most inconvenient time, what I didn't realize, though, was God never wanted us to leave Greenville. He was putting us in boot camp down there for two years so that we could come and start this. You understand? It all makes sense later. So just because the time seems wrong to you, if God is telling you to step out, step out. Step out by faith and trust him. Number four, he released his grip on the past. Verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? We can really feel the emotions swirling inside of Elisha in this moment. We can sympathize with him for sure. I mean, God is asking him to leave everything. Father, mother, home, land, livelihood. This had to be really hard for him. It's perfectly understandable that Elijah, Elisha first wants to go back and spend some time with his father and mother before leaving. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. But what we need to remember is when this phrase is used in the Bible, when someone has a call placed on them and they say, uh, just let me go back and kiss my mother and father goodbye, or something of that, that nature. It, it doesn't mean, hey, can I just run back to the house for just one quick sec and tell everybody bye, and I'll be right back. That's not what they're saying. What they're usually saying in the Bible is, I need to figure out a way to put this off for a while. Can we stall? I'm stalling you. That's what I'm doing. When we see people um, saying this in the Bible, that's, that's usually what it means. Luke 9.59 is an example. Then Jesus said to another man, follow me. The man replied, Lord, 
First, let me go and bury my father. Well, that's another reasonable request. The Lord wasn't against somebody burying their loved one. But Jesus knew that this man was making excuses, just trying to delay the call. And that's why Jesus said to him words that sound horribly harsh. But he said, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus attended funerals. So he wasn't against that. That wasn't the point. But he saw this man's heart and he called him on it. Jesus always made it very clear that if we choose to follow him, folks, there are going to be things that we have to leave behind. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I'll tell you, that denying yourself and letting go will not come easy. It won't come easy. Think of the tears that have been shed over the years by our family, saying goodbye so many times in so many different countries. It's hard. You can get as spiritual as you want. It's still hard. So understandably, Elisha was, was struggling with this. And it's possible that at first he, he was trying to delay the call. I don't know that. I'm just saying we see that a lot in the Bible. But either way, we see that he definitely did come to the place of surrendering himself completely to God's call, and he did something extraordinary. He goes back, verse uh, 21a. He turned back from Elijah, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Again, this is so bizarre for us to read this, especially on a Sunday morning when our stomachs are grumbling. That's just, it's just odd to read something like that. But this, again, meant something to them. These people were big on memorials and sacrifices and moments together. We're so scattered and rushed today, we wouldn't have time to build a memorial. God does something great in our life. Woo, I got to get to the next thing. No time to pause and gather stones and commemorate what God is doing. You know, all those um, memorials and altars that people had built over time, we read about in the, in the times of Jesus. Just think about a family walking down a dusty road with their little kids and they turn the corner and they see a big pile of rocks and the kids say, Mommy, Daddy, what is that? And the kids have this wonderful, the, uh, the parents have this wonderful opportunity to say, Hey, kids, let me tell you what that is. Let me tell you what God did there a few years ago. Oh, we miss that today. That's what's taking place here. This, Elisha is creating a moment, a memorable moment, a marker in time that he can always look back to and know when he stepped out to follow God. And in this astounding act of declaration, he sets fire. He chops up his wooden plow, piles it up, sets fire to it, kills the oxen. I've always felt bad for the oxen in this story. They weren't doing anything. They were doing their job. <laughs> but he slaughtered the oxen. And like Hernan Cortez, setting fire to his ships, Elisha was severing his pull to the past, and he was declaring his commitment to the call. And we might look at that and say, well, I mean, it's just a plow and a few oxen. It's not a big deal. You've got to understand, this represented Elijah's livelihood, his, his sustenance, his security. So yeah, it was a really big deal for him to do that. So uh, we wonder, how could this farmer ever have come to that point? How could he have ever been so ready for that, to, to just let go of all those things that had value to him, meaning, memories. He just let it go. He didn't just let it go, he destroyed it. How could that be? Well, I would su suggest to you it's because 
he held his possessions with a very loose grip. So when it was time to let go, he was willing to let go. Too many people, I think, try to serve God with one hand. They've never fully released their grip on the things of the past or the things of this world. Jesus said in Luke 9.62, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. I've looked back a few times. You? Listen, I've said this to you before. I say it again. If you get tired of it, tell Rex Jones. I don't really care. Just (laughs) complain to him. It's his week. You can't follow God and stay where you are at the same time. And I don't mean geographically. Sometimes, yes, but rarely. I'm talking about in your heart, in your will, in your plans, your motives, your dreams, your desires, your goals, your ambitions. You can't follow God and stay where you are at the same time. You can't do it. So let me ask you, what are you holding on to today that God has already asked you to let go of between you and him? Can I just say, Jesus left heaven to obey his Father's call. He asks a whole lot less of us. Finally, number five, he willingly accepted God's assignment. Verse 21b, then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Yours may say ministered unto him. The word servant here is just what it sounds like. It means servant. It means one who's on his knees washing the feet of the master, one who's washing the dishes, uh, you know, straightening things up, running errands. Elisha left it all to become a what now? A servant? He wasn't called to a glamorous, high-profile position. But notice Elisha did not try to negotiate the terms of the call. He didn't say, listen, I've, I've paid my dues, man. I'm not going to be your servant. I'll be your partner. But servant, that's beneath me. He never said that. He willingly accepted the task that God put before him. You know, some people only want to serve the Lord if it's something that they can get recognition in or if it's something that's easy or convenient. We've got to be willing to serve anywhere, anywhere. Yes, we need to know our spiritual gifts, and we need to, we need to focus on those areas because that's the area God's really going to use us, and we're going to find the most joy, and others will find joy in being around us. But listen, the old saying says, if the, if the ox is in the ditch, you don't need ox extraction specialists to get it out. Just roll up your sleeves and get down there and help get it out. It's the same in our service for the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes, we just have to jump in, and we have to say, Lord, I'm, I'm all in. I'm serving you. Whatever you ask me to do, clean the bathrooms back there. I'm on it. They're going to be sparkling better than they ever have. See, that's the attitude we should have in everything serving the Lord. Again, it's the principle of stewardship. We have to prove our faithfulness in the small things before God will ever <clears throat> trust us with more. And after all, that was the first point of this message. That's where Elijah started. He was being faithful where he was with what he had. Now listen, I want to wrap this up. I'm going to close by getting really real with all of this. What we've just talked about here, surrendering ourselves to God, is not going to be easy for us because we live in this stuff 
this flesh. And it will fight us every stinking inch of the way. Paul said it. In my inner man, in my soul, the part that's saved eternally, oh, in my inner man, I long to do God's will. You feel that, don't you? You long to do his will. But he said, this outer man, this flesh, it hates to do God's will. So that battle that you're feeling in those moments where God prompts you to obey in something big or something small, that struggle, that battle that you're facing is not unique to you. And I hope that comes as encouragement to you. You're not alone. I was talking with one of the men in our church this week. We were able to meet for a little while. And he talked about struggling in prayer. Like he really gets down to pray and, and, and he's like, oh, Lord, and he starts praying. And like 18 seconds later, he's thinking about an errand he needs to run. And he comes back. He's like, okay, oh, I'm sorry. Let me start again. Okay, listen, this is the battle of the Christian life. Don't get yourself defeated or down because you're fighting that battle. You're fighting that battle because you're saved. So if anything, it should come as a confirmation for you. There's always that fear also. I hear people say it from time to time. What if God calls me to obey him some way and then he messes up my whole life because of it? Wow. Do we understand that our Heavenly Father loves us more than we have ever been loved? And he would never do a single thing to harm us or to hurt us. But in order to know that, you have to know him. So can I ask you, do you know him enough to trust him that much? Do you know him enough to trust him that much? I don't trust strangers until I know them. If I'm walking downtown at night with my wife and a guy comes out and says, hey, come, come with me down this alley, I'm going to go, you're nuts, man. Take a hike. <laughs> but if my best friend comes out and says, Phil, you got to come with me down this alley, I trust him. Right? I'll find out later what it's for. Why? Because I know one and I don't know the other. And there's trust with that. Maybe the reason we don't trust God like we should is because we don't know him like we should. It's just a thought. So my encouragement to you today is, if you're struggling in one of these areas, listen, the solution is not to try harder. Boy, that is a, uh, that is a really painful, exhausting life to live. Get up every morning, oh God, I failed you yesterday, but boy, I'm going to double down today. I'm going to try harder. And you get home and you're more discouraged than ever. What is wrong with me? That's a message for another day. But it's just, it's not trying to live the Christian life through our own efforts. It's saying, God, I can't do this. I admit to you, I can't do this. And so put me to death today again, and I'm asking you to come and live through me. That's the way, that's the only way it can be lived. But as I said, that's for another day. You know, the, the solution in this is, is to get to know him like you've never known him before. And in doing that, folks, you will come to a place where you can honestly say the words of that wonderful song, Lord, I lay my life completely in your hands, knowing that all my days are safe there and that your plan is perfect for me. What a way that would be to live, huh? How about today we all commit to just start in that one area that God has been prompting your heart about in the last 40 minutes? Just start there. 
And let's see what God will do. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see